0: Hello everyone and welcome to Manufacturing the Future. I'm Jim Anderson, Multimedia Content Director here at Engineering.com. Today we're speaking with Glyn Fletcher, President of EOS North America. Glyn is also Vice Chairman of EOS AG, the German parent of the North American business, and he's a Manufacturing Veteran in the machine tools sector prior to joining EOS. Glyn, thanks for joining us on the program.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Great to see you, Jim.
0: All right, Glenn, tell me a little bit about yourself and about EOS.
1: I have a a very strong um, manufacturing background. Uh, My career started with Cincinnati Millicron, great company, um, 12 years, sort of that was my machine tool apprenticeship, Um, followed by 18 years with uh, GFMS, which is a very well-known Swiss machine tool company. Again, great organization, privileged to work for them. And for the last five years, I've worked for EOS here in North America. uh, and that's been a, a kind of a wild ride because the last five years have been really very exciting in the additive manufacturing space. And such a contrast from the traditional uh, manufacturing environment, you know. So my background was milling, turning, grinding, EDMing, um, all subtractive uh, processes. And now additive is, uh, is a, a quite a, a, a change of mindset for me. I have to think about things uh, very differently. Um, but one of the things that uh, is refreshing is that I think in more in the traditional space, it's, a, it's more about getting the most you can from what already exists. Um, in the additive space, you know, the, the, there are lots of opportunities that present themselves and lots of growth perspectives that you really were not exposed to in the same way in, uh, in that traditional um, machine tool environment. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's been great. EOS has been around for 30 years. It's kind of uh, surprising. Uh, everybody thinks of additive manufacturing as being uh, very um, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the moment. Um, but if you think about it, it was, well, I always, I put it down to the, uh, the famous um, uh, The Economist uh, headline, and it was 2011. And The Economist said something on its front page, like, print me a Stradivarius. And that got everybody really interested and really um, curious about the uh, the technology. And uh, it's sort of gone exponential since then. So, yeah, it's a fun time and it's a great company to be working for.
0: Uh, Clint, you come from the subtractive space, machine tool space, so you're uniquely qualified to look at, at both sort of sides of, the, of this form of manufacturing. And, and, and in a sense, we have that in common. I, I started literally as a teenager in the machine shop at the, in front of a Bridgeport, you know, fly cutting uh, you, know, you know blocks of tool steel. But it's in this subtractive world, we tend to think about looking at a block of O1 or D2, and we're imagining a net shape trapped inside that block, much the way a sculptor would think of a block of marble and, and see the net shape inside. It. So the goal is to sort of throw the waste away, to expose the, the, the desired net shape inside. Additive is exactly the opposite. It feels like magic. It starts with nothing, with a, an, an empty chamber, and then you grow your net shape out of thin air. I, I get a sense that there's a belief among some that you can do one or the other. You can be, you can be great at a subtractive mindset, but you, you can't really translate that knowledge or that experience effectively to the additive mindset. Is that true?
1: Um. No, I think uh, the more I know about it and the more that I can compare, it becomes increasingly clear that additive and um, subtractive are complementary processes. Each has its place and it it should be seen as that. Additive manufacturing should be seen as a a tool um, in the toolbox. You know, it is a means of manufacturing um, that is somewhat different from the traditional means of manufacturing uh, but that doesn't mean it has to entirely substitute for those uh, traditional means of manufacturing so I see the uh, definitely this coming together so true whether it's um, um, on the polymer side with injection molding or whether it's on the metal side with with those metal removal techniques I think there's a place for all of it but for me you know and made very uh, obvious by the current situation with regards to covid and lockdown and things like that um, the 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 thing that additive brings more than its ability to offer more design scope it's its ability to fit into this so-called digital value chain i mean i think that that is tremendously powerful now and uh, whether you're in the traditional subtractive space or in uh, the additive space I think we're all now um, required to think more about this digital value chain and how that works in this n- new normal environment.
0: Okay, hmm. you mentioned the digital value chain. Um, historically, let's think about tooling, for example. You've you come from the injection molding space. Um, a, a quarter of a million dollar, 96 cavity injection mold, for example, uh, that has to be right first time. So the pressure to design the part to perfection first time, of course, is tremendous. So there's incentive to invest a lot at the front end of the development process to make sure that at the manufacturing level, you're ready to go. Yet with additive, I get a sense that you can almost iterate your way to success. You can really start pre-production or pilot production very early in the development process and just try things, and then just sort of tweak the design as you go. Is that changing, do you think, the way engineers think about manufacturing?
1: Well, absolutely, because you're right, you know, there is no limit to the number of iterations. They almost come free. I mean, it's a little bit of material and a little bit of time and effort to make the adjustments. But uh, as you say, you make a huge injection mould, or you produce a uh, you know, something um, a traditional subtractive uh, machining centre approach. Then you generally you're investing in tooling, you're investing in fixturing, you're investing in tool holding, all of those things, which make it a, a, a very costly process and a a process that you need to get right uh, uh, well if not first time very quickly Um, and that sort of limits your creativity a little bit to play around so you end up with compromises all the time in in subtractive manufacturing things are more linear more angular holes are straighter because of the manufacturing process and the cost of manufacturing whereas that doesn't make any difference at all to additive manufacturing as long as you can get the powder Out of the cavity, uh, that's about the only um, design criteria that you have to uh, really worry about. Uh, And so, yeah, uh, it's uh, flexibility, design freedom. This is all very low cost in the additive space.
0: One of the things that surprised me about highly developed additive designs is how organic the shapes are. I think in engineering, we're used to think of a triangle of forces, so so things do appear to be sort of rectilinear or, or triangular in shape. And if, if that seems to be reflected in the design process, yet I'm seeing even relatively simple things, brackets, uh, gussets, things that are done in additive which appear more like biological things than, than actually human-engineered things. Is it
1: coincidence? Uh, no coincidence at all. You know, this, uh, this so-called biomimicry, um, Yeah, what better model can you use than nature in terms of design? This has uh, evolved over you know millions, billions of years. Some of the things that we see in nature. So you know, given the fact that it has taken that long to evolve, there's got to be some, and has evolved successfully. There's got to be something said for the nature of that design. So why not mimic nature when you're designing? Why not use the, uh, the natural world as your template? Uh, because you do not have those limitations that I just described in the traditional uh, manufacturing space, the limitation of oh, drill it. You can't drill. Cur- well, people will argue with this, but it's not so easy to, uh, to drill a curved hole. It's very easy to create a curved hole in, uh, in an additive design. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do additively that you couldn't do um, subtractively. Uh, And it's great to have this um, bio-ability because then uh, you can start to think, you can start to really expand your horizons. You know, I always think of additive manufacturing as giving you the ability to make better things in a better way. And uh, it starts with design. It goes through to... Um, development into production uh, and right across the entire supply chain. There's a lot of uh, advantages that could be applied.
0: Glenn, you mentioned the uh, the infamous curved hole. Now, in the injection molding world, of course, the mold making world, the long-standing dream is, you know, the perfectly isothermal mold where the heat flow from every cavity is is exactly uniform to every cooling channel. And of course, in in if you're crust drilling and manifolded uh, cooling in the back of a mold, that's impossible. But conformal cooling, that's been the dream forever. Is, it, is additive gonna get us there? Are we gonna reach a point where you simply have to use additive to make an injection mold?
1: Um, well, whether you have to, um, I think that that's maybe a bit too profound, but why wouldn't you? I think now what people are beginning to understand is that yeah, conformal co- cooling gives you a lot of advantages. And maybe it's a little more difficult to produce the mold additive- additively Maybe the mould may cost a little bit more, but the production advantages that you gain—you know, just the uh, the ability because of your um, uh, improved cooling conditions to eject the moulded component a few seconds uh, um, quicker—I mean, that's enormous. If you're if you're moulding you know, millions or billions of parts, a few seconds here and there will make an enormous difference. So. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of uh, advantages to uh, to the application of conformal cooling in that uh, application.
0: Glenn, in my experience of manufacturing, um, larger firms that had in-house tooling machining capabilities had a certain advantage. And the design engineer could design something and then have a prototype or a functional prototype made, perhaps out, of a, out of, of a non-durable material for a fit check or even something just to show someone up the chain, that this is what we want to do. And that's tremendously powerful. And smaller design engineering firms historically didn't have that advantage. They had to send drawings out for prototyping at great cost. Is additive going to be a way for smaller design engineering firms or consultancies to sort of win back some of that inherent advantage that their bigger competitors have?
1: Um, well, I, I'm not, Jim, I'm not absolutely sure that that is how things will evolve. My view is that we will get more and more to a what is described as a distributive or uh, distributed manufacturing um, environment where uh, you will have access to the um, uh, to the resources that you need uh, wherever you need them from and can deploy them. and as long as you've got the means to deploy those resources and if it's additive, it's really fairly straightforward. you have the system and you have the material, Uh, And you have the data. As long as you have that criteria, not only can you do the development, but you can do the production as well. And, you know, uh, there's always this argument with additive manufacturing that it only works at a certain level of scale. Um, But, and, you know, to some extent that is true because today it is a fairly costly process Um, uh, comparatively when you're trying to produce at scale. But more and more you see, organizations really large oems considering your additive manufacturing not only in terms of the ability to produce the part but its ability to fit into the supply chain and provide all of those advantages all down the line like i described before design development um uh, production supply chain optimization end of life control all of these things are now well within the grasp of you know, very small companies as well as very large companies, because that's the uh, the very nature of the beast.
0: Mm. Uh, Clinton futurists have often talked about a coming age of mass customization, where if I want a toaster, I want my toaster made designed and built to my specifications, not the same one that ever, everyone else purchases. Is additive a way to get there? Do you think that's the future?
1: Um, Absolutely. Uh, I think things will be made at a smaller scale. I think what we've seen and has been really emphasized, uh, the importance of uh, the ability to be close to your customer, both in terms of uh, physically, geographically close to your customer and close to your customer culturally as well. So, you know, I think more and more we will see that people will want to have a a much shorter supply chain. So, you. Your ability to produce close to your customer will be important, but then to your ability to produce close to your customer's specific requirements will be increasingly important. And you can't do that with mega factories, you know, these huge mega factories that are distributed around the world, whether it's in China or in the United States or in Europe or, or it doesn't really matter where it is. I mean, there are certain limitations to that. They only work at scale. They only become cost-effective at scale. Um, But now if you can break that down, if you can granulate that production requirement and you can spread it around, then um, you can fulfill those uh, objectives of being geographically close, so shortening supply chains, reducing cost as a consequence of that, uh, and being able to produce something that is specific to the environment, whether it's the individual customer or it's some sort of cultural issue that is different in the United States versus China or somewhere in Europe.
0: That's a fascinating future. I was thinking at the, at the other extreme. I'm thinking of things like the aerospace industry, for example, where it's not mass production. It's relatively limited production, but safety critical. Perhaps the nuclear industry is another example. Safety critical, um, small volume components. Many of these industries, the, the part is regulated, but also the process to make the part is regulated as well. I'm thinking of a famous example we covered here at engineering.com of an owner of a Second World War fighter plane. Uh, who found that a he it was legal for him to repair a cracked exhaust manifold using a $200 Home Depot arc welder, but it wasn't legal for him to use advanced additive manufacturing to make a more durable, safer, higher quality replacement part because additive was not an approved process for, for doing that. Is the regulatory regime are are they keeping up with the state of the art in in additive?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, well, no. I said yes, but you know, yes to uh, the. Uh pretext and no to the context because, no, that's one of the problems, you know. Uh, when asked, you know, what is the, uh, the biggest challenge to additive manufacturing, my usual response is, uh, it is uh, the so-called habits of the present. It is because of regulation uh, and because of, uh, you know, a resistance to change. Uh, it takes a very long time, um, particularly in the commercial aircraft industry, to get something qualified and certified, and it's a it's an onerous process. So there's an enormous resistance to to changing that process because there's a lot of work involved in doing so. So there is uh, there's a resistance and reluctance, and not only is there the regulatory regulatory um, uh, resistance, but also you know, if you're a, well, sorry to say, but if you know you're a 50 year old engineer who's an absolute expert in producing something traditionally subtractively, you're also going to be challenged by the concept of this disruptive technology. Um, and if you're an organisation who have 50 of those engineers who've done all of your engineering over the course of the last, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years, and you've got a shop full you know, of of um, Oh, a great example is you know, um, uh, we have an office in Novi, Michigan, right in the center of, you know, the, uh, the big three Detroit automotive industry. Um, and it, from that office, I, I'm sure I could walk, you know, easily a 15 minute walk and find uh, half a dozen or a dozen machine shops of some description that would contain 300 CNC machines of some description. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of sunken cost. Uh, there's a lot of sweat equity contained in those shops and, uh, uh, and you know, we would be um, you know, it would be inappropriate, inappropriate and you know would be foolish for additive on those people who are in the additive industry just to assume because you have a better way of doing things that automatically people are going to switch to the better way of doing things. It's going to be inhibited by regulation. It's going to be inhibited by sunken cost. It's going to be inhibited by the habits of the present. And so that's really uh, the big challenge at the moment is to try and, you know, slowly but surely, and we we will, you know, it's not a question of if, it's only a question of when. Slowly but surely, we will uh, infiltrate and we will substitute. But um, it's quite a long process.
0: Now, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned Detroit. We're both familiar with it, the big three. And, and you're at that huge sort of supply chain tier one, tier two infrastructure and support structure that exists, uh, you know, in that part of Michigan. Uh, the, the sex appeal and additive is always the exotic part. We always want to see, you know, hot section gas turbine blades. You want to see fuel nozzles, spacecraft components, you know, this, this stuff. But many of us in manufacturing feel that the sweet spot is in fixturing. It's actually in the things that make the things or in the things themselves. Is, is that an area where additive, do you think, is going to break out? I have a gut feeling that additive basically will be more valuable initially and, and the jigs and fixtures side of manufacturing than the part-making side.
1: You know, I think we're actually past that. I think we have convinced uh, the automotive industry and the aerospace industry that um, from a tooling jigs and fixtures point of view, that additive is the way to go. Um, and now I think we're actually transitioning into more of the mainstream um, um, production. It's still you know, it's still a little bit of a tenuous path. Um, uh, you know, there's the famous um, Gartner hype cycle where you start with the technology trigger. You go through this peak of inflated expectations and you drop into the, uh, I think it's called the trough of disillusionment. You know, it all, you know, seems a little, a little abstract. Um, and I, I, I try to simplify that. And, and for, me, for me, it's more of a question of going from the wow, which was additive, which is the print me a Stradivarius wow, the cool biomimicry, bio-mim- all of those things, to the now, which is actually the migration of additive into what is the more boring space. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a really cool part. It could be a really boring part but it's a part that's made a, a, in a in a higher volume. And it's not being made that way because of design, but it's made that way because it fits better into this digital value chain. Because if you take the automotive um, industry, for instance, uh, I think uh, one of the things that is becoming clearer is that there's a lot of cost associated with production in um, the automotive industry that is due to Supporting the uh, the vehicles that they produce over a very extended period of time, and so you know a model is uh, produced, it goes into uh, into the market, it reaches its end of life, but for twenty or thirty years after that, the automotive industry has to support that model with spare parts, and so uh, in the automotive industry, there are uh, all around Detroit, there are huge warehouses. Uh, that contain not only spare parts on a, uh, uh, on a just-in-case basis, but also the, the dyes and the molds and all of the tool sets that are necessary to go back into production um, when, uh, when they need to uh, increase production because there is an increase in demand, or, or they run out of the spares that are c- contained in the warehouses. Now, if you think about it, if you start with a digital file, and you produce something additively you get the benefit at the design stage you get the benefit at the development stage and at the production stage you can make a decision if you've designed it cleverly uh, and if the volumes are very high you can decide that maybe the better approach is to injection mold or to press or to you know, cnc machine uh or if it's a lower uh, uh, volume, then you may continue along the uh, the additive ra- uh, route. But once you get through this um, you know, uh, high volume uh, stage or a reasonable volume stage, then you can revert back to the additive design. So instead of making a bunch of um, spare parts to put on a in a warehouse somewhere just to gather dust and, uh, and depreciate and to cost a ton in working capital, it's a digital file. Now you have, instead of having a physical inventory, you have a digital inventory that you can actually deploy when and when, where and when you need it. So uh, it's this entire value chain that is the most important criteria for me.
0: One final question for you. If you were a young engineer, technologist, Engineering professional at the student level coming up now, mindful of additive as something you're going to work with in the future. Is there a single piece of advice you could give that individual as to how they should be additive minded or additive ready for future manufacturing?
1: I would say don't think additive, think digital. You know, this is a bit obscure for me to say as somebody who is specifically responsible for the growth of the additive manufacturing industry. But I think digital is the thing that will tie all of this together. So, you know, have a digital mindset. And this is what's great about people coming out of college now, younger people. You know, I gave that example of the, you know, the 50-something engineer. And no disrespect to any 50-something engineers. I'm speaking as a 60-something engineer, you know, it's absolutely no disrespect whatsoever. Um but, uh, you know, there are a lot of really talented, capable young people that are leaving uh, a higher education now um, with a very, very digital mindset that fits perfectly into this digital space of which additive manufacturing is one uh, component, but one, I think, very important component.
0: Lynn Fletcher, President of US North America, thanks for joining us today. And thank you everyone and see you next time on Manufacturing the Future.